chapter 5. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We've been uh, in the book of James for a number of weeks, months maybe we could say. And uh, we've come to the last message uh, in this series of studies in the book of James. Not that we've exhausted all that there is to know from it. We certainly never do that. But uh, we're going to... uh, finish up the book of James, and then we'll start a new study the next Lord's Day, Lord willing. James chapter 5, uh, we're going to look at a time to pray. And uh, as we mentioned in the past, the theme of the book of James is spiritual maturity. Uh, throughout the book, James gives the mark of the mature Christian, a mark of the mature Christian in chapter 1 was he's a patient in testing, uh, chapter 2, he practiced this truth. Chapter 3, he was has power over his tongue. Chapter 4, he was a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. And in chapter 5, he's prayerful in troubles. And so in chapter 5, there's a subject of the second coming. We looked at last Sunday morning. We need to be prepared for his coming. Uh, the preparation includes not only a life of faith, but a life of prayer. Prayer should be a vital part of every Christian's life. Uh, James gives us several particular principles concerning our prayer life and when we should pray. And of course, Paul always has reminded us uh, that we should pray always, uh, be always in an attitude of prayer. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. But there was one day a little boy was tormenting his little sister, I don't think you probably think that's uh, hard to believe. But uh, a little boy was tormenting his sister by throwing stones at her. And that night she prayed for him. She prayed, dear Lord, bless Billy and keep him from throwing stones. And by the way, Lord, I've mentioned to you this several times before. In that way, we sometimes feel like, well, I've mentioned this, Lord, a number of times. But we need to keep on praying. One of the overriding needs in our life is to keep praying. Persistence in prayer and patience in prayer. But I want you to notice here in James chapter 5 how we are to pray. First of all, prayer in affliction. Prayer in affliction. And we're going to be looking here, first of all, at the condition. In verse 13, we read... Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any among you afflicted? This ask uh, uh, is ask of every person, and undoubtedly, I think all of us would say yes. Uh, there are some who are afflicted in body, some who are afflicted in spirit. Uh, many of the afflictions uh, are of the outer man, and others are of the inner man. Sooner or later, all believers are going to know some sort of affliction in their lives. So that's the condition, affliction. Uh, Then we come to the counsel. So what should we do? Complain? Grumble? Fret? Worry? No, he says here in verse 13, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. 
I think many would have the model, why pray when you can worry? Uh, another one said, worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And so there are times of affliction, and those times of affliction should be times of praying as well. I think God allows affli- affliction many times to get our attention. Uh, he allows it to humble us, uh, to help us, to realize our weaknesses, how that we need God. The spirit is humbled, the heart is broken and tender, and prayer is the most acceptable to God when it comes from a broken and contrite spirit. Now this word afflicted here in verse 13 could be uh, in reference to mental or emotional anguish caused by the pressures which the rich had imposed on the poor. I read, uh, studied that uh, last time in verses 4 through 6. But the word here is closely returned, uh, related to the term affliction in verse 10. Uh, in verse 10, it talks about the prophets and how they were an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Prayer is the balm of healing to the distraught mind. Communicating with God is a sure means to release uh, some of the tensions of life and what we ask in His will we will receive. Now if we go back and we notice the emphasis on prayer in this book, go back to verse uh, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven uh, with the wind and tossed. Uh, and let not Man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, You lust and you have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Uh, in verse uh, 3, he says, Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that it may be consumed upon your lust. Down in verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. And then we have the verses here in chapter 5. So James has a great deal to talk, uh, as he talks about prayer, uh, a great deal to say to us. Notice not only prayer in affliction, but prayer in joy. As we go on here in verse 13, <coughs> excuse me, is there any Mary? That's the condition. Well, God is gracious to us. He gives us hours of suffering, but he also gives us hours of singing and joy. The word Mary here means a deep inner sense of well-being and joy. When Paul answered Felix, he answered with cheer. Acts chapter 24, verse 10. Then Paul, after that, the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that ye have, thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. The word Mary is not something silly. It's not uh, kind of an unrealistic glee in spite of trouble, just kind of laughing it off. But it's a cheerful spirit, and it's a courageous spirit from a complete trust in the Lord, which we sang about 
moments ago. That's the condition. The council says here, if any marry, let him sing psalms. Now, uh, let's not just think that prayer is for times of difficulty and trial, but prayer is also for times of peace and blessing. Uh, You know, sometimes uh, people say, well, I I don't know what to do. I can't do anything else. I might as well pray. You know, Uh, I've run out of ideas what to do in this situation. I might as well pray. No, that's not uh, what prayer is for. It's not just for when you get in trouble or when you have a need. It's a time for peace and blessing and prosperity. We don't give God enough praise. Uh, when times are going good, instead of giving praise, we sometimes uh, become vain. We become self-confident, forgetting that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh uh, from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Uh, prayer is a part of, uh, or praise, I should say, is a part of prayer as a petition. Besides that, believers can be cheerful even when they suffer if they commit their problems to the Lord in prayer. Psalm 40 and verse 3 says, And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. You see, the Christian who is merry or cheerful should express that by singing psalms. It's a form of prayer. Uh, The word translated psalms is used throughout scripture to refer to giving of praise to God. Acts 27, 25, wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, Paul said, for I believe God and it shall be even as it was told me. You know, God's people should be a singing people, a praising people. Praising God tends to be one of the weaknesses of many Christians. Uh, The Duke of Wellington, the British military leader who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, was not an easy man to serve under. He was brilliant. He was demanding, not one to shower his subordinates with compliments. And yet even Wellington realized that his methods left something to be desired. And in his old age, a young lady asked him what, if anything, he would do differently If he had had his life to live over again, and he thought for a moment and replied, I'd give more praise. Listen, it's a mature Christian that can sing when they're suffering. The Lord is able to give us a song in the night. Job uh, 35 verse 10 says, But none saith, Where is God my maker who giveth songs in the night? Acts 16 and 25, we know the story of Paul and Silas and how they were put into prison and they prayed and they sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. In 1 Chronicles 16, 8, it says, Give thanks unto the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Psalm 95, verse 1 and 2. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. You know, praise and prayer, I believe, are closely related. Praise is actually a form of prayer. In the Old Testament, the phrase sing praises comes from the Hebrew word, which means to make music. It was the music that was used to pray 
uh, praise the Lord. You say, well, yeah, that's all fine uh, for some people, uh, but I can't even carry a tune in a bucket. Uh, sometimes I can't even carry the bucket. Well, maybe you should do as those, as we've been encouraged to do there in Psalm 95 and Psalm 98, make a joyful noise. Um, someone said it, uh, it's how you sing on the inside that matters. May not be singing very well on the outside, but uh, you need to have a, a heart of joy and give praise to God. And so for that reason, music in our church services should bring honor and glory to Christ. God, uh, godly music is a form of worship and praise to, to the Lord. Think about this. When, when Christian praises God, he identifies himself as a Christian. The ungodly uh, may acknowledge the existence of God, but they don't glorify God. Unrepentant sinners refuse to praise the Lord. In Romans 1.21, it says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You know, when a Christian sings, not only sings with his mind and his mouth, but he sings with a spirit too, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. That's what we mean by singing from the heart. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, what is it then? I pray with the Spirit and I pray with the understanding. Also, I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. Question is, are you ashamed to sing and praise the Lord? You say, well, I don't have a very good voice. Sounds good to the Lord. Uh, you shouldn't uh, be ashamed of doing for him what he deserves to be what deserves to be done giving him praise now i want you to think of one other thing and then we'll move on when the christian praises god it counteracts his pride when you, we prosper we have a tendency to forget the lord you know everything's going great and we become uh independent of him we say everything's going fine and then for this reason we are to keep our eyes on the lord and eternal matters when we praise god it brings glory to him and it will counteract the pride that so easily comes in our lives prayer in joy prayer in affliction prayer in joy prayer in sickness prayer in sickness verse 14 says, any, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of, the, of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. No doubt these verses have caused many students of the Bible to be puzzled about their meeting. One of the things that puzzles us sometimes is why do people suffer? You know, why do, why do Christians suffer? You know, we're, we're God's children. Why do we suffer? Uh, can the Lord just really heal someone? Does God heal people today? Uh, is it always God's will that someone be healed? 
Well, I think there's two uh, main ideas that we look at in this passage. And again, we look at the condition, first of all. Let me say, throughout time, there has been a number of interpretations or ideas concerning the meaning of these verses. Uh, One idea of these verses deal with the Roman Catholic, what the Roman Catholics call extreme unction. Extreme unction is one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And a priest will anoint a person with oil who is in uh, extremis or at the point of death. And they'll pray for forgiveness of their sins. They'll give them the last rites, basically. Is that teaching scriptural? Well, I don't believe so. Certainly not. Christ is the only one who can forgive. Christ is the only one who can cleanse a person of their sins. Extreme unction is administered when a person is expected to die. James is speaking of someone who is expected to live. You know, some propose that these verses are the basis for divine healing ministries. Well, today we see healing crusades with men and women who claim to have the gift of healing. These verses, however, give no indication of a gift of healing. There's no case of elders having a gift of healing and being miracle workers. If someone is sick, he's to call for the elders of the church to come to him. He does not go into a healing crusade. James is describing something here that is intimate. It's something personal. It's not for public display. It's interesting to note that those who claim to be faith healers could not heal themselves. It was the father of the post-World War II healing revival uh, who uh, would be called William Branham. Yet in 1965, at the age of 56, he died after suffering for six days from injuries sustained in a car accident. A famous tent uh, uh, evangelist and faith healer, A.A. Allen, died of sclerosis of the liver in 1967, having secretly struggled with alcoholism for many years. Faith healer Catherine Kuhlman died of a heart failure uh, in 1976 after battling heart disease for 20 years. Ruth Carter Stapleton, the faith healing sister of President Carter, refused medical treatment for cancer because of her belief in faith healing. She died of the disease in 1983. Healing in the New Testament times, there was a miraculous gift as a sign gift. It was used for very special purposes. It was not intended to be permanent to keep Christians healthy. Yet today, faith healers will teach that God wants every Christian to be well. If that's true, why does God allow Christians to get sick in the first place? Now, there are basically four reasons for sickness. The first one is sin. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. It's because of sin. And uh, 1 John 5, 16 also even talks about a sin unto death. So sin can be a cause of sickness. But it is not always the cause. It can be a cause. 
Another reason for sickness is strengthening. You said, I thought sickness made you weak. No, not always. Not particularly not in Paul's case in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he speaks of his infirmity and his weakness had made him strong. You see, sickness can often give you spiritual strength because of its humbling effect and the way it causes us to stop and think and reflect upon our lives and think upon what our, how our, we depend upon the Lord. It can strengthen us. Sickness also is for God's glory. John 9, 2 says, And disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then, Another reason for sickness is there comes a time to die. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die. I recall the last words that I heard my dad speak as the nurses wheeled him off for bypass surgery. He said, Well, you're going to make a well man sick. My dad was having heart problems and he was determined that it was determined that he had some blockage and he had to go in for some heart surgery. At that time I lived about 250 miles away and after the Wednesday night Bible study in the church I was pastoring at that time I drove to be with my mother and to take her to the hospital to see him before he had his surgery that next morning. And that was the last time I heard him speak. For when he came out of surgery, he had tubes and machines hooked up to him. He couldn't talk. I stayed as long as I could with him that week. And then I went back home and to my ministry thinking, well, no doubt he'll recover. But he never did. Two weeks later, I got a call that he had gone home to be with the Lord. It was his time to die. He was sick, and though he had hardly been sick a day in his life, it was his time to die. As I was thinking and preparing this message this week, I got word that our missionary Ray Virtue went to be with the Lord. It was his time to die. We're saddened by the, the loss We're saddened for his family, for his church. But we rejoice with Ray as he's at home in heaven. It was his time to die. When is it time to pray? Is there any sick among you? The word sick in verse 14 comes from a word which means to be without strength, to be weak or feeble. This word speaks of a serious spiritual and emotional condition as well as a physical condition of weakness. This word was used to describe those who were weak in their faith or in their conscience due to suffering or possibly the chastening of the Lord because of sin problems in their lives. The word sick here in verse 15 
is another word, though. It's a word which means to be weary. And so the idea that this only speaks of physical sickness is not the whole story. It goes much further than that. James seems to be dealing with people who were sick from sinful living or spiritually weak from being in the midst of suffering. These are the ones who are to call the elders of the church. And so there brings us to the council. The council is the call for elders. It says, let him call for the elders of the church. Now the person who is sick is to do the calling for the elders, not for the faith healers. Uh, In preaching, we're to go to the lost. In healing, we're to wait for those who are sick and spiritually weak to contact us. The phrase, let him call, written in such a way that it's a command. It shows the urgency of the situation. Now, the elders uh, were the pastors, the spiritual leaders of the church. Many churches had a pastor with godly men working under him and helping him in his preaching and his teaching and his ministry. And so those who were sick were, uh, from, were sick from spiritual weakness, and that weakness or sin, possibly, were responsible and commanded to call for the pastors, the council to pray and to encourage them. They were to get their lives right with God and get rid of the sin out of their lives. Many were physically sick because of the spiritual problems they had in their lives. Sin uh, and guilt were taking their toll in the lives of the disobedient. God's chastening was to bring conviction. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, it says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I think it isn't interesting Uh, to note that faith healers call or bring those who are sick to their meetings. They do not go to the sick who are weak and sometimes too weak to come to a meeting. Uh, Very seldom do you hear about a faith healer going to them. They'll say, uh, come to this meeting and we're going to heal you. We're going to make a display. If they really had power to heal, they'd go to the hospitals. They'd go to the, uh, to, uh, the uh, countries where thousands are dying every day. And so we have the call for elders. Secondly, we have the command for elders. It says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The pastors were to pray for the person and anoint them. And it was the prayer that was made to the Lord that did the healing, not the anointing. So what does the Bible mean by this word anoint? Well, the Greek uh, word means to rub someone with oil. Now, in my study of this word, I found that it was not the word which means a ceremonial anointing of someone. It wasn't a ceremony. Uh, That happened back in the Old Testament when Samuel anointed David to be the king of Israel. That was a ceremony. The word that James uses is not a ceremonial word. It's a medicinal word. Those who were sick were rubbed or massaged with oil, which acted as medicine in Bible times. We probably wouldn't do much of that today. 
Although uh, some would say uh, there is an oil for that. Okay? Some of you know what I mean by that. Olive oil especially had a medicinal value back in that time. was good for skin and for wounds. Herbs such as myrrh could be combined with oil to make stronger and fragrant. It was refreshing and strengthening. So what does it mean? When you call the pastor, he'll come and rub some oil on you and give you a massage? No. Not, I'm not in giving massages, okay? That would seem what James is instructing the elders to perform a medical and spiritual ministry. Now, why would the elders uh, be giving a medical, have a medical ministry here? Well, did they have doctors and hospitals like we do today? No. But they would perhaps uh, give some physical and spiritual help to the, those who are in need. So if you're sick, call the doctor. Get the treatment that's available to you today. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, there are many wonderful medicines available today, and sometimes you have to uh, do your own diagnosing. I understand that. But we have clinics, we have hospitals, and most people have good insurance plans to help with the cost. But it's not a lack of faith in God to heal you if you go to a doctor. Often I pray for someone who going to a doctor to get a test or something. I'll say, pray, Lord, give that doctor wisdom that they might diagnose the problem and give the proper treatment. I prayed God would help them to do that. Just pray that the doctor knows what he's doing and he does it well. And you can call the pastor. I will certainly come and pray with you. Will I anoint you with oil? Well, I could. But there's nothing magical. There's nothing special about putting oil on your head. And that's the clear message here in the next point of what we're talking about. We've looked at the council, the, the call for elders, the command for the elders, the consequences. We find that in verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. You read that? See what that says? The prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. If a person was suffering because of sin in his life, he would be forgiven when he repented. And I would say not when the elder put some oil on his head and said, abracadabra or whatever. Because that's not what this is. The prayer of faith will help encourage the spiritually weak and the defeated. It will help and aid in spiritual restoration. And sin is often linked with sickness and depression. And the guilt from sinful living can be overwhelming and can create emotional and physical sickness. You know, uh, God will chasten sinners with sickness often for several reasons. There may be jealousy. We find that in Numbers chapter 12, a rebellion. We won't take time to go back and look at all these passages, but re jealousy, rebellion, discontentment, adultery, uh, taking the Lord's Supper unworthily, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 
All these passages speak of the sickness that comes uh, as God uh, chastens a person for sin. Some illnesses are not the result of sin, though. But they're for the purpose, as we already said, for glorifying God. Uh, That's the way James makes the statement. He says, if, if he has sinned, not all sicknesses are a result of sinfulness. And so those are the consequences. Notice, fourthly, the conditions of healing. You see this again in verse 15. uh, The prayer of faith shall save the sick. Uh, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Several key phrases here, anointing in the name of the Lord, back in verse 14. Uh, Prayer to the Lord in faith. Again, uh, healing is not based on a sick person's faith, but the faith of those doing the praying. Healers use the excuse that God did not heal the person because that sick person, you didn't have enough faith. That's why you didn't get healed. God, however, is looking at the faith of those doing the praying as well as the repentance of the sinner. You know, God will answer our prayers when they're offered in faith. He awaits, however, for our prayers before intervening in healing. We have many prayer promises that we can anchor our souls to. Note here again the phrase, if you have committed sin, is written in such a way that it means if he has been constantly sinning, he would be forgiven. So anointing in the name of the Lord, prayer to the Lord in faith, and then uh, confession uh, of sin, clearing of a conscience. Uh, verse 16 says, Confess your so- uh, faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then as we go on down, uh, we find here, confess means to agree with. We're to agree with God about our sin. Before there can be healing, there must be confession and repentance. David said in Psalm 66 and verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We're uh, we're to confess our faults or our slips. And when we clear our conscience and we seek forgiveness from others, we take the confession as far as the ripple goes. In other words, if your offenses are private with one person, you clear your conscience with that one person. If there are several people involved, then you get right with all of those people. If the offenses are public, then you get right with those who have been affected by your sin. Get your life right with God first, and you'll get it right, and then get it right with men. So we have a prayer in affliction, prayer in joy, prayer in sickness, and then prayer that works. Again, in verse 16 through 18, we find that uh, whole messages could be preached on these verses alone. And you've no doubt heard some of those messages. But James concludes this chapter emphasizing that which was stressed throughout the book. And that is that faith works. Unfeigned faith manifests itself in the 
confession, the intercession, and the conversion of, uh, of the believer. Genuine believers pray and they persist. Now we have the example of Elijah here. Verse 17, Elias was a man subject to like passage as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the earth gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Again, we could spend a whole message just on Elijah here. But God heard. God answered. Not just because Elijah was a prophet, a spokesman for God, but he was a man just like you and me. Of like passions. He was a man who was not any difference in that sense. And he prayed earnestly. He prayed fervently. He prayed believingly. He prayed definitely. He prayed humbly and steadfastly. And that's the kind of prayer that works. It's not stubborn persistence regardless of God's will, but being fully persuaded that God's will, of God's will, and clinging to God until that request is granted. Praying earnestly is being conscious of being in God's presence, that he uttered the very desires of God's heart. And then finally we see praying for others. Verse 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. What kind of concern do you have for the souls of others? Not just for the unsaved, but James reminds us here of the it's possible for a believer to stray from the truth. That's what he's talking about here in verse 19. He's talking about erring from the truth. The word err or err, E-R-R, is from the Greek word uh, planeo, which forms an English word planet. Means to lead or cause to stray, to lead aside from the right way, to wander, to roam, to lead from the truth, to lead into error, to be led into error. You see, when we wander from the Lord and the truth of God's word, we need to be turned around and heading back in the right direction. Or in other words, be converted. We need to be revived. We need to be restored into fellowship with the Lord and his people. We're to have the right relationship to God's truth. So what is your relationship to God's truth? Do you love it? Do you obey it? Do you live it out in your life? Do you speak it in love without harshness or pride? What is your desire concerning others? You know, believers can defect from the truth or in, in creed or conduct. Some Christians are guilty of doctrinal deviation. And through ignorance or persuasion of other members of, a, of another persuasion or cult, new Christians have been known to embrace heretical doctrine. Sometimes they wander away from the truth through worldliness or deliberate resistance to the known truth. And instead of walking in truth, they walk in error. But spiritual Christians should make an effort to bring them back. Bring back the erring brother. Again, the word converteth here means to bring back or to turn around the one who strayed from the truth. And here we see the importance of an effectual Fervent prayer. Surely one of the best ways to be prepared for Christ's coming is to be found earnestly praying for the salvation of the lost. 
and a return of backslidden Christians. What about your faith? Is it a faith that works or is it faith that's dead? Are you counting it all joy when you have trials or are you feeling sorry for yourself? Are you seeking God's wisdom or operating on your own? Are you recognizing that sin comes from within or are you blaming God? Are you a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Are you concerned about all souls or are you a respecter of persons? Are you letting your tongue delight or is it being used to destroy? Are you a friend of God or a friend of this world? Are you drawing nigh to God or are you in league with the devil, hanging around with his crowd? Are you letting the wealth of this world be used for God's glory or your own glory? Are you being patient or impatient? And then finally, are you living in light of Christ's return? Or do you have no regard for his coming again? These are the questions that James puts forth to us in his book. You say, well, that's a lot of stuff to think about, isn't it? Well, I trust we are thinking about it, meditating on it. And that God will help us to live as we ought to with a faith that works and that's not dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the study that we've had.